You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Welcome to part three of four of four very special Middle East Analysis extended podcasts. We've already talked about Christians and a potential third intifada. We've talked about those majority minorities, a term that Harry took exception to. I don't really blame him. I was trying to be provocative. And for the third part, we are going to be talking about the gulf between faiths. And I make no apology for playing on words a bit there. Gulf, really, we're looking at gulf states, those states that surround the the Persian Gulf. I'm joined by Dr. Harry Hagopian, who's joined us for our previous podcast, of course, international lawyer and analyst on the Middle East, North Africa region and gulf states, which brings us nicely to those gulf states. Now, we don't often imagine there are very many Christians in those gulf uh, states, do we? Well, it's very interesting, James, because I smile wryly when you say we don't imagine about Christians in those Gulf states because our listeners who might have already listened to the other podcasts we did about Christians in the Middle East, North Africa, when I was talking about the fact that they are the original successors of Christianity, the first apostles, the disciples, people don't know they're there. So if they don't know they're there and they're sort of left with their jaws dropping by what? Arab Christians in the Middle East, North Africa? Imagine how much wider the jaw drops when you say, what? Christians in the Gulf region? But it is a fact. However, this is where things change a bit. Because one of the things that we have to understand is that there is a huge diversity in Christianity. The Middle East North Africa Christians, by and large, and I'm going to make you smile now, I'm Armenian, therefore I'm an Armenian Christian Mm -hmm. who hails from Jordan, who comes from that region. However, the majority of the Christians living across the Middle East North Africa, those countries we spoke about, they are Arab Christians. They speak Arabic, they think in Arabic, they pray in Arabic, and they basically have Arabic traditions and customs, much like the Muslim neighbors, with some, of course, differences. Whereas in the Gulf, we have a different reality. That reality is that the large numbers of Christians across many of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, countries like Kuwait, like the United Arab Emirates, like Qatar, like Oman. These are countries where the Christians are, I would consider them as guests or expatriates. People who come from the Philippines, people who come from Nigeria, who come from Arab countries, Lebanon or others, seeking work in those countries. So it's a motley combination of different people coming there and those different Christian identities bring with them their own traditions and cultures. So when you take, for instance, the ecumenical body that represents all Arab Christians across the Middle East, North Africa, the Middle East Council of Churches, when you talk to the hierarchy of the Middle East Council of Churches and you tell them, listen, 
you are representing or you are speaking on behalf or supporting the rights of Christians across the MENA region. What about the Christians, the hundreds of thousands across the Gulf region? Why aren't you talking about them? Why aren't you incorporating them or including them in, the, in your programs? And they answer by saying, well, these people are not Arabs. And this is where the dichotomy, and it's a painful dichotomy, that takes place because we are yet again subdividing the body of Christ into another two identities, Arab Christians and non-Arab Christians in the Gulf. So if I sit here with you and we talk about how Western Christians do not even recognize the reality of Arab Christians in the MENA region, by the same token, I would criticize Arab Christians for not recognizing the reality of expatriate Christians in the Gulf, be they from the Philippines, be they from Nigeria, be they from Sudan, or wherever else they come from. And those are the people that are there working day in, day out, earning their money. Some of them earn good money. Some of them earn just a small amount of money which they send home to sustain their families. And those realities are different from those in the MENA region. However, what binds the two together, just as those two are bound with Western Christians, is our belief, our unshakable belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one who reconciled God to us. This is the reality of the Gulf as I see it. So if I go to Dubai for four days on a holiday and, well, I was going to say on a Sunday, but it might be more likely a Friday. But if I want to go to a church, can I do so? The simple answer is yes. And you can do it in Dubai, just as you can do it in Abu Dhabi, just as you can do it in Doha, just as you can do it in Oman, in Muscat, just as you can do it in Kuwait City, with one exception only, and that is Saudi Arabia. But if we take Saudi Arabia out of it at the moment, and the crown prince is on a charm offensive trying to prove to everybody that Saudi Arabia is opening up to the world, mm. again, what I said in a previous podcast, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If we leave Saudi Arabia for a minute, because that's a different case, and take all the other countries, you go there. And yes, it is not on a Sunday, it is on a Friday. But that's simply because Friday is the day of holiday. It's a Muslim country, their day of holiday is Friday and Saturday. We nominally are Christian, or at least we have Christian heritage in the West, and therefore our weekend is Saturday and Sunday. So these people go on Friday to church, and all you need to do is find out where the church is in any particular one of those countries, go there and participate in the services, be it an Anglican church, be it a Catholic church, be it an Orthodox church. I mean, there are so many Orthodox churches Coptic, Syriac, uh, Ethiopian, Catholic, of course, Evangelical and Anglican, and worship God there. So nobody is going to tell you you don't have the right to do that. What you don't have the right to do is to stand outside the church and start reading from the Bible and calling people to come and join you, what we somehow call 
I don't know whether it's the right term or not, evangelizing if we want to take the Pope's word or proselytizing if we want to take another word. Indeed. But then you mentioned Qatar, Church City, as it's sometimes dubbed in Doha. You have Our Lady of the Rosary. You've got some very big churches there. Now, again, my ignorance, but I'm interested in whether Church City as, as a as a sort of communal area, a community area. Did that spring up for expats? Or how did it come into being, these places of Christian worship? There is an Armenian author by the name of William Saroyan, who is a very well-known Armenian-American author, who said, when you bring two or three Armenians together, that is where you create Armenia. The same applies to Christians. When you have Christians together, these are people from the Philippines. In the Philippines, it's supposed to be one of the most devout, and I use the word advisedly, devout countries for Catholicism. These people are in those countries like you mentioned Qatar. They want to worship. Where do they worship? So basically, those people have managed to get their churches built there. Now, how did this happen? How did the Anglican Church of the Epiphany, for instance, come about? How did the two beautiful Catholic churches come about? How is it that we have there a wonderful Greek Orthodox Church with a wonderful priest, Archbishop Macarius there? How is it that the Ethiopians, the Copts and others have churches? They all went and took special permission from the ruler of the country, the Emir of Qatar, who granted them the land so long as they pay for the building of the church on that land. And all those churches, for logistical purposes, but also perhaps for religious and security reasons, were all housed together in a complex which is known as the religious complex, which we also know euphemistically as church city. And therefore, what you do on a Friday, for instance, if you take the Anglican Church and the Archdeacon of the Gulf there is a very dear friend of mine, an American Anglican, Bill Schwartz, who basically was the one who helped construct the Anglican Church. And it's got 17 different kinds of evangelical and Anglican communities who come in like a rota. It's like a conveyor belt every Friday for their services. The same is with the uh, Catholic churches, which incidentally are always full. Then you have the Orthodox, particularly the Greek Orthodox, where the Armenians who have no church worship there, where others come and worship with them as well. This is the sense of how they came together. They wanted a place of worship. The country agreed to that. And the ruler of the country, the ruler of all those Gulf countries, allowed those Christians to have their churches. Whence, when you go and visit, you can go there and pray and believe that you are actually in your own church, but in a different geography. Now, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and I'm not going to go back to that country specifically, but talking about the charm offensive towards the West of the Crown Prince. I'm going to ask this question. In places like Doha places like Dubai, places like Abu Dhabi. Is it more, well, 
it's far easier to put the Christians in one place where we know where they are. There are some rules, but that they are accepted and they're put in those places than it is to have them on street corners or worshipping in homes or whatever else. Is it a sort of matter of convenience or is this genuine freedom of worship? I don't think it is genuine freedom of worship. I think it is more a question of convenience. You see, it's very good to say I'm a free person. I can worship where I want, however I want, with whomever I want. Maybe that is something we in the West are spoiled enough, thankfully, to be able to do. But in most other countries, this is not the reality. And it's not only to do with Muslim Christian realities. Look at the Rohingya, for instance, and what is happening to the Muslims there and what the Burmese authorities are doing to them and what Hindus are doing to them. This can replicate itself in many, many different parts of the world. But in the Gulf region, which is a predominantly Bedouin, tribal, desert-rooted, I mean, the desert rose is one of the most famous images that uh, that part of the world projects to my mind. These are places where Islam is the dominant religion. And these are young countries that are beginning to accommodate themselves with the plurality of reality. For instance, in Qatar, you're going to have the World Cup in 2022. So there is a huge amount of construction taking place in Qatar. Wherever you look, there is construction. Buildings are going up. The metro system is being installed. Everything is being done to accommodate those people when they come in 2022. All this is being done as those countries progress and move forward. So it makes sense to me to shave off a little bit that un fettered freedom that we have in order to be able to sustain a life of worship as a Christian. So if I am living there, which I'm not, but if I were living in any one of those GCC countries and somebody says, would you be willing to do this? I said, yes, if it takes going through a checkpoint or if I have to be careful uh, how I express myself, it doesn't matter so long as in my private life, I'm able to worship because, again, for me as a Christian, God is one thing and Caesar is another. It's very easy to criticize others when we don't know them because when we don't know them, we usually do not understand them. When we do not understand them, our criticism is often a projection of our own ignorance as much as it is of their own failing. So we should be accepting of the plurality reality. Wonderfully said, James, plurality, reality, with all its flaws and all its freckles. I love that phrase. Well done, Harry. So that's part three of four. Join us, of course, for our final part, where we'll be looking at the Christian realities in Syria. 